0: Why am I with C-Bus Super? Because I'm a builder and they take care of me. Well, I had an accident on the worksite and they helped me out, no worries. Yeah, they helped me out real fast. Mate, they just get me. Because they are for all of us. c for all of us. To consider if c is right for you, visit cbussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out. This is the final word cricket podcast with me, Adam Collins, and him, Jeff Lemon. Another one of our late night nights. Late night nights? Is that word? <laughs> late night live. That late night live. That probably
1: reflects the love fact song of- dedications. <laughs>
0: I am knackered. It's nearing midnight again in the UK, and we thought we'd better get this in the can. Otherwise, our conversation about England and Pakistan and that wonderful Test match at Old Trafford will be a little bit dated, so we're going to talk about that in a sec. Uh, Jeff, you've just finished your book, though, so I think that we should start mm-hmm. there. It's early morning your time. Your body clock is completely ruined on the basis that you've been up writing a stupid amount of words, to stupid o'clock for about, Three months, and as a result, you've only had about two hours sleep. So, I want you to tell me how you feel having hit send on the final chapter.
1: Yeah, you're, I'm. I'm just getting in a little bit ahead of you on on the cycle. In that, I was like, all right, I've got to get up early and do the show nice and early to bed, lay in bed for about four hours, being like, <laughs> why am I in bed at like midnight? Um, and now I've had two hours sleep. So if this makes no sense, then, you know, bear with me. It, it'll be it'll be extempore. But yeah, it's done. The bloody, well, I mean the draft, the first, the draft is done. Uh, so uh, my editor's working on it now and there'll be some of more work to do on edits and all the rest of it, but at least... At least all of it's out. So there's a hundred plus thousand words that I've somehow got out in the last three months. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know how, but I think it's all right. I think it's uh, I think it's probably good. Like I've, I've read parts back of it, and I'm like, yeah,
0: I I, I like this. So in so. tone, I mean, obviously your your previous book, which this isn't really a sequel. For, as I, I mean, I've you've sent me what you've done so far, and I haven't had the chance yet because I've been working on seemingly. Every fucking game in the UK at the moment, but uh, but I but from what you've told me, uh, it, it's well, different. While
1: also having a child less than six months old, While having
0: a child that's less than six months old, my house is construction site. Izzy's sleeping downstairs actually on the couch in the uh, oh, yeah. in, in the living room? I'm uh, the uh, <laughs> as the stairs are about to be put in tomorrow. But the reason she's here is because we've been commentating out at Middlesex as they uh, play the Bob Willis Trophy. But um, yes, from what what you told me, so
1: the stairs haven't been put in yet. How did you get upstairs?
0: The other ones, the next the next bit of. Work on okay. on this house of ours. Yep. Tell us more about how we're going to experience this book compared to the previous one, which was more you know wasn't newsy. Your last book, I'm not going to, I don't mean it like that, but more that you really were sort of interrogating uh, the backstory of a crisis, whereas this was far, hmm. yeah, this this wasn't a crisis, far from it. This was a celebration of cricket in 2019. It's it's more cheerful on in
1: in the main, I guess. It's a sequel in as much as. Aliens plural Is a sequel to Alien The original But they're different genres You know There's The the original Alien Is, is a thriller um, And it's very it's, it's Claustrophobic And it's a handful of characters And it takes a long time To unfold And the sequel Is is a, a Ball bursting Action Flick Where Sigourney Weaver Tapes A flamethrower To other things So This is that version This is the version With a flamethrower Taped to it Because there's there are action set pieces in that everything that happened in England last year was ridiculous end to end to end but it's also i was also trying to get into what is the obsession that we have in sport with the idea of redemption stories and and how they become a completely formulaic process that we put anybody through who's who's ever been disapproved of or done anything wrong. It's like, oh, through the, it's, it's like the fish tube that they used to, to fire fish over the damn wall upstream into the redemption tube. whoop <laughs> and, and we just fire them upstream and they go, oh, they've come out the other side now, redemption. Um, so I'm trying to look at that as a as an intellectual concept, I guess, um, mm. as well as something that was happening in practice, as well as what was going on uh, on the field, as well as some of our off-field stuff. And I think it's, it's more fun than the previous book, um, although there are some serious sides as well.
0: I'm looking forward to reading it. I'll make a point of reading it over the next few <laughs> days when I just have a couple of moments to myself before we go again uh, in the second Test match. The first Test match, though, was a... A uh, ball terror. Uh, I think that's the, the right word to describe it. it. It was, I mean, really, Pakistan lost it, didn't they, in the end, when you consider mm. they had England 117 for 5, chasing 277 uh, on, I mean, a track that was turning square, dust puffs every delivery. Yasir Shah doing his thing with support from Shadab Khan and. Of course, the second new ball was going to be available, and everything everything seemed to be trending Pakistan's way, and then Butler and Wokes just made a decision to go nuts for half an hour before tea, uh, putting on um, a half-century and 49 balls, I think it was initially, which just turned the game around from nowhere. And then after that, we witnessed a really quite remarkable uh, final stanza where uh, Wokes was the hero, 84 not out, and Butler after having had a stinker with the gloves and so much scrutiny and perhaps close to losing his spot, who's to know, but um, makes 75 and he's there for the majority of the run chase. And it was so very exciting, Uh, not from sort of any other reason than the fact that I mean, I think the, the great cricketer boys, uh, Ian Higgins pointed this out on his show the other day, we don't get tight test matches in Australia. I can't think of the last time no. we had a test match uh, that was sort of alive at the tea break in the fourth innings. I know this was in the fourth day, not the fifth day, but it felt like the fifth day because of the way the, the game sped up. It's so rare that we have those kind of affairs in Australia, but in England, we're kind of getting them all the time and it's fantastic.
1: It's it's something that our listener, Tilo Fob. Pointed out at one stage as well, which is that Australia, historically and, and through a, a pretty long slab of recent history, if that isn't um, completely contradictory, aren't good at tight finishes either. You know, they don't mm. tend to they don't tend to win close games. They they tend to win by a mile a lot or lose by a long way. You don't the the instances of Australia batting through. The end to save a test match. That's why the Usman Khawaja thing in twenty eighteen was so notable. Mm, and mm. before that, it was it was Ponting in 05, Really, the, the Australian teams don't tend to do that. Whereas, I suppose maybe it's partly the nature of cricket in England, being that you can have you are more likely to have these low scoring affairs where where the bowling teams are, are in it all the way, and and maybe the way that Australian pitchers tend to work, where they become. Uh, they they become roads a lot of the time. Maybe that lends itself to large margins of victory, but um, all, but also that yeah, Australian teams aren't that skilled at holding their nerve in those situations, whereas maybe England can.
0: I, I think that second last point you made there is the most relevant one, actually, come to think of it. Because there's such big first-inning scores being made, the probability mm. of a Test match... Coming down to the wire, there's just more runs on the board generally, whereas yeah. in England you, you tend to have smaller first innings contributions, which means it's a, a more even contest across the five days. And I suppose the Dukes ball as well, which means that, you know, more often than not, the ball will have a competitive advantage over bat early on, which isn't necessarily the case on feather beds in Australia where the Kookaburra does far less.
1: Yeah, that, that's, that's the way it seems, so that you can have one partnership can change the match because you're not 400 behind you're 250 behind so obviously you can make the parallels to headingley and uh, which you don't want to overdo but there is a bit of that you know the 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 Berstow and stokes bit on the fourth morning at headingley of let's go for it before lunch and see mm. what we get mm. and that's pretty much what butler and works did was say well you know to 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 take the phrase from Joss's bat in the World Cup. Fuck it. It was, let's have a go for a while and see what happens because there was no point just poking about and, and waiting to get out because you, you saw you saw the ball that got um, Ollie Pope out, the the yeah. one that just reared off the surface. Um, and, and it was, was it Nassim Shah who bowled that? Um, it certainly was. Yeah. And, and fired up out of the surface about a foot higher than anything else from that length. Someone described no it as
0: a full bouncer on Twitter, which felt about <laughs> yeah. right.
1: Something like that. There's there's no use hanging about to wait for one of those. And like you said, if they'd batted for longer, then the new ball would have come along when there were 50 or 80 to get instead of when there were 20 to get. Uh, and yeah. suddenly that could have been a problem.
0: No, that, that's that's exactly right. And, and Butler said that after play as well. They They kind of knew that. And that was part of the calculation. That's why they went into white ball mode. And I think that what's perhaps uh, underplayed is that all those reverse sweeps that Butler was playing against Yassir Shah out of the rough, I mean, that's difficult at the best of times. He played about 10 of them. Uh, Eventually, he was out reverse sweeping, yes. But uh, the fact that he was able to execute that stroke over and over again, that's not by chance I mean, this is it. We, we talk a lot about reverse sweeping with Maxwell, or we have in the past anyway. Having watched him train, you and I have watched him net quite a lot. The reason why Maxwell can play all those shots isn't because he's just naturally gifted, although that obviously helps with hand-eye. It's that he practices it all, over and over again. The way that most guys practice their cover drive, Maxwell will be there practicing his switch hits and his reverses, and the same applies to Josh Butler. Uh, so we shouldn't necessarily be surprised, but, yeah, it, it's a reminder of that. Unique skill that he possesses, I suppose, in this England team to do freakish things. And when, when you know, I think that when you hear the case for Folks uh, over Butler, there's more to it than simply uh, the, the the belief that Butler is an inferior keeper to Ben Folks from Surrey. It's it's more that Butler doesn't represent red ball cricket. As an institution Mm. in England, of course, he moved to Lancashire to play ostensibly white ball cricket. He's played very little county championship cricket across the time he's been a professional, certainly in the last five or six years. I looked at his numbers a couple of years ago. I think he played over a three-year stretch, six games for Lancs, at red ball level, that is. He obviously plays in the white ball comps when he's available. But the reason he's in the test team is because of his white ball skills and that's never really been reconciled uh, by a lot of fans who sort of see the test team as a representation of you know the best of the 18 counties if you like what it used to be in the olden mm. days but obviously the game's moved on a fair bit so yeah that, that is interesting and, and it isn't to say that having a uh, having an excellent gloveman doesn't come with its benefits as well in the case of Australia Tim Payne as Justin Langer says over and over again his first job is to captain his second job is to keep his third job is to bat now that that works for Australia at the moment, you know, like, and that's okay. And England have taken the view that having Butler there is, uh, you know, is actually was batting six in the last two Test matches due to the balance they went with with the ball. But you know, the fact that they, uh, you know, they want Butler to keep better, of course they do. And Butler said it himself that he was very disappointed with the way he gloved them this week. But all the same, that's a decision they're making with eyes wide open because they know that they want to have his skill for a situation not too dissimilar to what we saw the other day, which needed a player like that to be able to play resourcefully when the chips were down. And he's a freak. And, you know, picking him in the test side on that basis uh, doesn't seem as crazy after all.
1: I felt for Pakistan, I felt for Shan Masood particularly, who yeah. played so well in their first innings, that 150 he made, in you know, a real breakthrough, given the way he'd struggled in England the last time he was there. It... it it goes on the long list of um, commanding positions that have been surrendered overseas, particularly for Pakistan. You know, so many times when they could have won significant Test matches. You know, S- Sydney twenty ten is is one that that stands out. Although that that might have had a, a little bit more to do with um, uh, sneaky Selman, but. Getting up to whatever he was getting up to at, at the time, whereas this one, this one's, you know, the, it it seems like they were just knocked off balance enough by that counter attack, and then suddenly it was like, oh, okay, what do we do? What are we supposed to do here? S- suddenly the the bowlers were second guessing where they were supposed to bowl. The field went very defensive. Azar Ali had everyone back, you know, too early rather than than trying to press the advantage that they did have. And they also had the ball going soft and it's not really doing anything through those um, those last overs. But with the erratic n- nature of the pitch, there was still enough erratic bounce if if they'd been able to to stay on target. But I think they just got... Um, they, uh, they got hoodwinked, really. They just got thrown off by the approach from the batting pair.
0: Yeah, they got spooked. The field spread too early. And even after tea, so... I don't think there was a boundary scored for twelve overs after tea, something like that. So they get to the fifty partnership in a hurry, and then they they go the other way. They go into accumulation. Yeah, well, they suddenly a, they
1: then they got a bit spooked. Then they were like, "Oh God, we only need fifty to win." Now, well, we this was earlier. This was, back, a, a little
0: bit earlier, I reckon, because the partnership was like okay. one three nine or something like that. Maybe not even that many. But the point is, is that I reckon that when Butler and Wokes went into accumulation mode, sort of middle overs one day international, and the reason they were able to do that was because suddenly they were five men out. They're protecting mm. the boundary. So you could say well played to the two England players for creating a climate where Azralli lost his nerve, but I sort of see it the other way that, I mean, there's got to be someone out there sending a the message through to the captain. No, 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 this isn't the time to retreat. This is the time to uh, press ahead and, and find that, one more wicket yeah. that will change the game. And for whatever reason, he went the other way. And there's been an enormous amount of scrutiny in Pakistan. I saw Zainab, who we were talking to on the show last week, Zainab Abbas, um, tweeting about this today. I mean, I'm not sure whether we should say it's predictably the case in Pakistan. that They're calling for Ali's head as skipper uh, in the media, but but it's certainly happening. But he'll get a chance to, I mean, redeem himself pretty quickly to use the fr- frame of words that um, you've been looking at in your book, as far as his mm. uh, leadership's concerned, because they're playing another test match in three days. It's the great thing about this English summer, isn't it, that because we're playing all the test matches in the space of seven weeks, uh, and of course we've had a one-day series in there as well, which we'll talk about a little bit later with England and Ireland, you know, we're straight back into the cycle again. Tomorrow's, um, you know, the the day before the test, and then we go again on Thursday. Barely
1: time for him to catch his breath, but I suppose it, it might be a blessing in some ways for a team like that to just get into the next one. But I was particularly amused at the end. So I was watching the, um, the TV coverage from over here in Australia. And when they were five down, Shane Warne was on the TV saying, you know what they should do? They should send Stuart Broad in next. Just send him in. He can just have a swing, you know, no no <laughs> pressure. He might win it for them in, in a few minutes. Not long after that, Joss Butler gets out, misses a a, a very full ball from Yassir Shah LBW. And out comes Stuart Broad batting at number eight. (laughs) Now, he'd batted at eight once since 2013. Obviously, I went back and and looked at this at the time. And and he batted at, at eight once in a test in New Zealand where the rest of the bowling attack was Mark Wood, Jimmy Anderson and Jack Leach. That's who it was. So you know that was literally the one time where it was like well i guess he is our eighth uh, player in in that particular 11 every other time he'd been lower than that and suddenly there he was at 8 so i was like you know are they listening into the tv and, and saying that sounds like a good idea it actually was a good idea because it was like if you were nine down you didn't want broad out there because he wasn't really the defensive player you needed to try to eke out the singles but if he's going to clobber a couple of boundaries and get you closer to the line with with 25 to win then you might as well Use him up early. Yeah, which is what they did.
0: He, he played his. Right. I think they came in with twenty one to get, and he struck a boundary second ball, and you're like that was almost enough. He he almost did his yeah. bit just by hitting that one boundary. It just was like the and exhale. We we, we still can score mm. runs having lost Butler. Broad, uh, well, he took six wickets in the game and uh, bowled very nicely. And England, of course, bowled out Pakistan the second time around for about one hundred and forty odd, which got them back into the game uh, to begin with. Uh, a lot of scrutiny on James Anderson's spell. Uh, and I thought he spoke really well today. I, I plugged into his press conference on Zoom this morning. I was quite interested to hear what he would have to say, and uh, he was in a reflective mood. He was basically saying that, well, first of all, he's not going to retire. So rumours were swirling yesterday when we got a message from the ECB that there was going to be an announcement in the afternoon, and of course, we we weren't to know that Ben Stokes at that stage, so I mean, no one was to know it was going to be um, something of a of, of family nature, of course, and Ben Stokes Um, won't be taking any further part in the series I feel like we are brushing over that but for family reasons um, he's going back to New Zealand and um, media have been asked to sort of leave it alone and and that we will but that means that he he won't be taking any further part uh, in the series but when that advisory went around I think people were like oh Anderson's going to pull a pin because he had a bad test match and that was the point he wanted to address this morning I think there's no guarantee he's playing on the weekend by the way he's hoping he still has the confidence of his captain and coach and so on. Normally, a, a player that does press between tests to go behind the curtain a bit, it would normally suggest they're playing in the next match. But that's not the case. Anderson isn't a lock for the next test, and he said as much himself. But he wanted to clarify a couple of points. One, he's not retiring, so stop stop speculating that that's the case. And two, that he will have bad games again in the future. He's had bad games in the past, and having a bad game doesn't mean he's going to quit the sport. So he's like, you know, keep yeah. things a little bit in, in perspective. But in saying that, Um, At age 38, there'll be a natural tendency to speculate about these things because of his age and and all the rest of it. But he's on 590 test wickets, I think it is, and he's played 154 test matches. But from his vantage point, the reason why it all went off the rails in that second spell uh, in the second innings was that he let the emotion get to him. It was really interesting. He said early in his career, when a catch would go down or things weren't going his way he would lose it. And I remember this. Like You remember the Jimmy Anderson tantrums? Oh, right up there with the best of them. And he said that for Mm. a number of years, he's been able to control himself so that when things were working against him on the field, he could just sort of step back from it all and not let it affect the next delivery. But on Friday, the reverse was true. He was pushing too hard, thus bowling that front foot no ball, which he never bowls, thus... Um, over pitching a number of times trying to bowl too quickly running in too hard it was really interesting hearing a bowler just say it like that Uh, so right that was how he was seeing his own performance but um, wants to make it clear that yeah he's still about I think he said in a subsequent interview that he's still uh, looking at the the next Ashes series in Australia which is still not what for 18 months or something like that so he's got longer term ambition he's only seven test matches away as well, Jeff, from breaking the England all-time record, of course, that is held by Alistair Cook with 161 tests. And uh, he was asked about that, saying the motivation to getting the 600 wickets or overtaking Cook, and he kind of jokingly said that overtaking Cook's the main interest point for him uh, at the moment. <laughs> but, um, it, yeah, it, well, I mean... For, I mean,
1: for a fast bowler to do that would be completely ridiculous. I mean, it is, isn't it? I mean, but the it, idea that he could
0: play 161 test matches as a fast bowler, having debuted in 2003... I mean that doesn't seem possible, but again that that speaks to just how fit this bloke is and that certainly hasn't changed. He's still bowling at eighty five mile an hour.
1: He must be – he would be that frustrated given the last year or so, given that he lasted four overs in the Asher series and had to watch the rest of it, got injured in South Africa immediately and and had to sit out that series. And then he's finally, finally sort of made his way back in uh, as of this summer in these weird lockdown biosecure tests and then, you know, having catches dropped and and not being able to contribute and and just – that would start to get to you. He's been waiting so long to be – back in the team and functioning and to have it feeling like it's not going right. So, uh, you know, I think he's still got a huge amount to offer given, like, he, he's bowled beautifully for the most part. Uh, the, mm. the, the one, the interesting point that I wonder about is setting his sights on the next Ashes is whether he will be any use in Australia because the last couple of trips, you know, the, they've, all of the Australian players down under in 17, 18 gave him credit for being a difficult opponent difficult customer to face because his his skills and his experience, but he still wasn't effective overall over the course of that series aside from, you know, one night in Adelaide with the pink ball.
0: Yeah, that I think that's partially how I would see it as well. Also that um, they didn't bowl him into the ground, like when they were in those um, situations across that series in seventeen eighteen, where all was lost. And look, there were a number of them. Let's be honest; they just didn't bowl him. They wanted to preserve his body, which seems to make sense at the time. So I'm not sure whether. Uh, yeah, it, it's a tough one to kind of weigh up, but I think that uh, he will look. The reality is, Archer and Wood are going to play the first Test match in Australia in 2021. If they're fit, yeah. If they're fit, they're playing. It's how they, if they want to. How they manage that third seamer role between Broad, Anderson, and Wokes. Now Wokes, we haven't even touched on. I mean, other or than
1: between someone else who's who's a third quick, who's you know who's a yeah. third genuine quick.
0: Well, well, well. I mean, Ollie Stone, if he if he's fit, uh, he's well. He was certainly as fit last week in the uh, well the warm up for the Bob Willis Trophy games, and well, I mean, he bowls as, as quickly as as any of them really, well, near enough. And he played a test match last year at Lords against Ireland. So I think he'll be there and thereabouts. Uh, Certainly um, you can expect him to be on the plane if he's fit, uh, given he has the ability to hit the radar, you know, well into the 90s. So time will tell, but Wokes, I mean, at home, what a handful. He's just getting better. I mean, they talk about that wobble seam delivery he bowls, which is kind of reminiscent of uh, when Anderson took the next step about five or six years ago when he just became unplayable at home. That seems to be the same for Wokes now as well he just takes wickets at important times constantly and now he's doing it with the bat I mean he's player of the match here uh, he was probably the second most important player in the previous match where Broad went bananas picked up for in the second dig to think that he was that far back in the pecking order to start the summer I think the segment I was doing with Michael Vaughan the other day he still can't believe how sort of undervalued he is and he think, he attributes it to his personality actually he says if he, was, if he was more abrasive and more in the face of people then he'd be tougher to uh, push to one side, but um, certainly at the moment... <laughs> not
1: thinking of anybody in particular when, when he says that. You no, know? If true. he made more of a song and dance about being dropped, <laughs> uh, someone said, not mentioning any names. No, but, no, yeah. um, But But look, he's been batting apologetically for, for ages and there was much made of the fact that he was averaging five with the bat in his last half dozen test matches and then suddenly came out and, and smoked 80 not out to win the test match. A lot of that's... It looked like it was to do with... Uh, Pakistan seemed to be a very skilled team at bowling to play as strengths uh, a lot of the time. I remember watching... Um, remember Steve Smith played a, a gorgeous T20 knock against Pakistan in the last Australian season when he was eight yeah, yeah. out, similar. Yeah, it was at... Um, I remember... It was it at Canberra,
0: I think? Canberra? I yeah. yeah, I think...
1: Yeah. It, it, I remember watching through it again w- with Barat Sanderace and I was like, how, did, how, how was Smith so good in this innings where often he's not quite at his best when he's got to really push the pace. And it was the fact that they bowled to his strengths almost uniformly. Uh, And and so often he he was able to use the pace of the ball and um, and sort of lift it away. There was lots of width outside off stump um, for him to to turn his grip around and go through. And it felt like that with Wokes. They kept bowling wide, to him, so that he could keep going through the offside. There was nothing short; they didn't bump him. He's been he's been chronically susceptible to bounces in in the last couple of years. Mm. The Australians rendered him completely pointless with the bat during the Ashes last year by bouncing him as soon as he came out. And Pakistan have got this attack that could do that, and they just didn't do it. Uh, so, you know, none of that seems to make a, a lot of sense to me. the, the one. The, the one note I would like to give in in praise is for Yasir Shah, who just uh, the fact that he was he was beaming, he kept like smiling at everybody and and laughing and trying to diffuse the tension. He was fielding like a demon, you know, in there close to the relatively close to the bat at cover or mid wicket and throwing himself around. And even when they needed four to win, he still had a smile on his face. And and then he was straight up to Wokes afterwards to to congratulate him on, on that performance. And I just thought, you know, that that was. There, there was something really heartening in that in the the enjoyment of the contest rather than uh, fretting about the contest
0: I also like the fact that it was Yassir on the final morning that uh, put the foot down with the bat as well hitting a 6 of course we saw him make a test ton against all expectations uh, last year in Adelaide, but yeah, I I certainly share that. And one more um, note before we move off the the test series. Uh, It was actually from before the test started, a little um, tweet went out from the ICC. I think Crick Info had the story, actually. Although I say that under advisement after the last time I declared that Crick Info broke a story, we received a a multitude of tweets from a a journalist in India who wanted to make it abundantly clear that it was he who broke the story in question. Uh, But um, it was uh, telling us, or telling the world rather, that front foot no balls were going to be uh, adjudicated by the third umpire. Now, after everything I said on the show two or three weeks ago when I had that story uh, about it being uh, in in play for the uh, World Cup Super League and how it wasn't going to be in the World Test Championship until next year, to the ECB's immense credit, they already had the technology in the country because of the um, because of the one day internationals against Ireland, so whatever it is that they needed to rig up, they already had handy, um, so they they invited the Pakistan cricket board to use the technology they did, and lo and behold, uh, it worked brilliantly, so well done to the ECB for uh, their uh, their their foresight and for the Pakistan board for playing ball uh, and hopefully this will be the the st- stock standard procedure into the future and indeed if australia do play india this summer uh, that there might be the temptation to say look we'll, we'll worry about that for the next world Ch- test championship cycle but i hope now we've seen the example from the ecb that cricket australia follows suit uh, and we can uh, remove uh, the front line from the responsibility list of the f- central umpires forever when it comes to test cricket
1: one of the central umpires is my nomination for the Seabus Super Performer of the Week. I know that Richard Kettleborough will be very pleased about this that <laughs> this was for for an episode that a, a lovely bit of byplay that happened during the Test match you You may have noticed this at the time i don 't know i haven 't discussed it with you, but it 's Stuart Broad going up hugely excited for a league before wicket appeal. He really, really gives it the big ones. And there's no movement from Kettleborough. And after after howling his lungs out, Broad goes, Oh, and he turns around and looks at the cordon to say, oh, you, like, are we reviewing that? At that point, Kettleborough pops his finger up. He's been <laughs> thinking about it. He's been you know, he's been pondering it. And he says, Okay, yep, out, pops the finger up. The cordon all go, all sort of, you know, you just clap their hands and run in, job done. And then as Broad's turning back, Kettlebrook gets the finger down and hides it again, just as Broad turns around to, to see him still standing there impassively. And he's like, wait, what's happening? And then he goes back to the cordon again, and they're all running up to congratulate him. And he's like, what, what was that? And he has to go back to Kettlebrook again and say, was that out? And Kettleborough says, yeah, yeah, it's out. Um, it, was just, it was just so nicely managed because, you know, Stuart Broad with well. his problems with not giving enough uh, deference to the umpires, um, suddenly the, the umpires were like, well, let's just have one back.
0: I was going to say, I'm sure that was deliberate by Canterbury. He's a very clever man. I'm sure he knew exactly what he was doing in terms of waiting till, well, waiting till the celebrity appeal was over before putting the finger up and then Getting it down just in time. So I think that's a very worthy winner of the CBUS Super Performer of the Week, Jeffrey. CBUS makes sure that all profits go to members, not
1: shareholders, just like the umpires do. Uh, CBUSSuper.com.au. If you would like to find out more about superannuation with a product disclosure statement, uh, you can also remember that past performance does not necessarily dictate future
0: performance. On the weekend show, uh, Jeff, last week, I, I sought I asked for a pediatrician to find a, the PDS mm. or to download the PDS in PDF, PDF. form and get in touch. i am mm. well, yet to check the uh, the inbox over the last couple of days because I've been quite busy out at Radlett. But I, I'm hoping that we'll have a pediatrician listening who can do that for us at some stage. Of course, the weekend <laughs> show of the final weed, if you've not been listening they, to it. Are they the
1: baby ones or the foot ones?
0: Uh, they're the baby ones, the podiatrist's yeah. oh, the right. feet ones, I'm pretty sure. What if sure you need lot. someone
1: to fix your baby's foot? This do is you have very a good pediatric question.
0: podiatrist? Well, well, on that front, my baby, Winnie, who turns six months on, must be Friday the 14th, uh, she now loves her feet so very, very much. Her, I'm sure pe- people enjoy the Winnie update, so I'll give you one. Her favourite thing to do is just to simply suck on her foot all day long, which is incredible. What if I could? what. if you I what? could, but I can't so I don't. <laughs> if I could uh, get down there. Yeah, so she sucks on her feet all day long. Only she only takes her foot out of her mouth pretty much to do one of two things. To eat the mushed up food we've been giving to her. Wait, are you talking win. about Winnie or Shane Warne? I'm definitely talking about Winnie. Uh, to to, 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 uh, to uh, The mushed up food we've been giving her. So a bit okay. of banana, a bit of sweet potato was in the mix the other day. She had some peas. She's had some avocado because, of course, she's so bourgeois. And and she also likes um, uh, uh, drinking water from the cup. Um, and she, I mean, she grabs the cup with, uh, she hasn't clutched anything as hard as that uh, really in her life so far. So it, it can't be long. Now that she's sipped water, she'll be sculling a beer standing on her head in no time, I'm sure. But there's your Winnie update. Uh, and as Good. it relates to what I was talking about before I started talking about i have absolutely no idea but i know that oh yes it was about um pediatricians and podiatrists and the fact that we may need well who knows one of both for winnie given she can't seem to take her feet out of her mouth at the moment it's ever so cute
1: (laughs) as the hilltop hoods once said my foot's always in my mouth i just can't stomach defeat (laughs) (laughs) the icc stuff happened during the week. The uh, the Women's World Cup has been postponed by a year. The men's T21s have been changed around in, in order. The Australian one will be in two years' time. The Indian one will be in one year's time. But I think what, what interests you and me most is that 50-over women's tournament that was due to be held in February in New Zealand, which is pretty much the only country in the world to ha- have fully controlled their COVID-19 situation, is just not going to happen because reading between the lines the member boards couldn't be asked putting enough cricket on before then uh, would have been too hard to to actually play enough games get the qualifiers played for the last three spots to be filled they've they've given it their lip services that oh there, there won't be enough opportunity for preparation uh, to 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 have it played to the highest possible standard which Seems pretty convenient.
0: Well, I suppose I suppose on that basis we can't play the IPL this year. Oh, well. No.
1: No, well, they haven't oh, been well. able to what play.
0: They haven't played any cricket because of COVID, yeah. so they can't, I suppose, so, play yeah. the Indian Premier League. Look, I mean, look, let's go through this um, in order. First of all, I suppose you can kind of judge a decision made at ICC land based on how many disgruntled messages you get from ICC insiders when the decision's been made by the board and there are a shitload on Friday um, from those who are relatively um, close to the organisation in and around the organising committee as well for these tournaments. I mean, look, the, the New Zealand government said on the weekend that they were ready, willing and able to host this tournament. If their only excuse is that the three teams that, we get to qualify, wouldn't be doing so until later. I mean, is that really a a big enough reason to delay what could have been such a wonderful centrepiece, such a wonderful celebration of cricket, the first global tournament back, being played in a pretty safe country comparatively right now, certainly uh, in relation to, well, Australia or India or England, the big three, New Zealand uh, from a covid uh, policy response perspective have done outstandingly well. Um, look, I'm not saying this is because of the BCCI. They have decided there will be no women's tournament. I'm not saying that, but the BCCI do run the ICC. So by extension, uh, they have made this decision. So they should be held accountable for it. I don't know what their reason for doing it was really. I mean, they've said there's this cricket this, um, element to it and maybe that's part of it, but I'm sure there's some financial reason for it as well. But it just seems so frustrating to me that this tournament where so much effort's been put into behind the scenes by those at Cricket New Zealand and those at the local organising committee, where we were there, of course, in 2017, Jeff, for that magnificent World Cup, uh, and that did wonders for the women's game, as did the T20 World Cup that happened just before COVID this year. To think that, I mean, we're just going to push it back a year, and, of course, they'll find room between times for a men's tournament. Oh, funnily enough, a T20 men's tournament in India, but the women's tournament gets pushed back in the queue in a country that's... Surely going to be uh, far more straightforward as far as hosting in in COVID times. I mean, it just, uh, yeah, I said on Twitter at the time, and I know, Jeff, that you and I both made news with our tweets. I'm not sure if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but it just kind of reminds you of everything you kind of worry about with the governance of world cricket. You just kind of shrug your shoulders and move on because it is how it is, and it'll probably never change now. In the absence of all the smaller countries binding together as one voting block, and I don't even know if they have the ability to do that, this will just continue to be the status quo. And Australia, yep, are on the receiving end this time, but they've aided and abetted the BCCI. They've allowed the big three projects to get on its feet some years ago now. Um, they've enabled the... This to be the way that world cricket runs. So, Cricket Australia, in a way, um, this almost serves them right. And, and all, the, and I feel sorry, deeply sorry, for all the uh, the, the uh, members of the organising committee for the T20 World Cup. Of course, they did a sterling job for the women's competition. Yes, of course, the the comp this October had to be delayed. But now, I don't know what's going to happen to the contracts for the grounds. Are the staff going to remain still in place? I mean, there's a lot of stuff. Uh, that's going to happen now to these people who've worked so hard to put this event on. Uh, and as I understand it from those who've been relatively close to it, it came down to a fairly simple equation. India wanted it, so India have it.
1: And as far as the women's tournament goes, it didn't... There's nothing that I've heard gives the impression that they were being fought tooth and nail by anybody. Um, so that's that's been... That, mm. that decision's been made with a pretty broad consensus that what, that basically it's just too hard. Oh, it's t- it's, it, it's not too hard to get the test series that's currently underway on, regardless of the current situation. It won't be too hard to get the IPL on in the UAE. yeah uh, It won't be too hard to get India to Australia yep. in December for Absolutely. a test series. And all of those things have a huge amount of revenue attached to them. You know, that's obviously why. But that it's just been decided that it'll be too hard to get. They only need to get eight teams for this Women's World Cup. It's not that difficult. If you need to play a qualifying tournament with a few more teams to see who qualifies, they could do that in New Zealand beforehand and just roll it in, You know, make it an extended tournament. There'd have to be ways to do that. It requires getting those teams quarantined into New Zealand and then having them play. And as for the fact that they haven't played cricket beforehand, that's because the first thing to be cancelled was all of the women's fixtures around the world. (laughs) So the solution to, to... a lot of women's cricket being cancelled is that you then cancel the rest of the women's cricket. You know, it just, mm. that's, that's the rationale that we're being presented with, which is being dressed up as, oh, we, this is our concern for the, for the uh, integrity of the women's game, to be given their best possible opportunity to be at their best when they play. I mean, come off it. You know, it just it, none, none of that checks out. None of that stacks up. But, you know, that's, that's what's happening. And uh, we'll just have to keep being annoyed about it until it'll be a five-year gap between women's world cups from the, the 50 over one in 2017 and that's where we are
0: in terms of the australian summer well obviously that the state of flux continues uh, i saw during the week the scg trust ever reliable the scg trust they never miss an opportunity do they and <laughs> um, they put their hand up saying they want both the boxing day test and the new year's test i mean even if they could get crowds they, they don't they don't sell the place out anyway perth will get more people to the boxing day test than than Sydney will, uh, so I think their case is far more compelling. Adelaide Oval's the best cricket ground in the country, so if they uh, get to a stage where they can get people in, indeed they've had people at football games at, in Adelaide um, during the, the AFL season, so I think um, you know, the SCG Trust should just uh, keep their council for once, I would have thought, but um, it doesn't stop them putting their hand up. But yeah, the, the probability uh, of the MCG hosting it seems to diminish by the week because they want to find a way to have the major set piece test matches having crowds and in all likelihood, it's hard to imagine Melbourne having crowds. December twenty sixth. although in saying that I mean, as I said those words, I mean I I kind of remember that things are changing so quickly, who knows where we'll be in a few months time, it feels almost premature to make any decisions about a, a test series which isn't scheduled to start for what, still, I don't know five months, something like that? Yeah, who
1: knows which, you know other cities could be finding themselves in in bad positions like we, we just don't know what's don't know, yeah. going to be be going on nick hockley who's the interim uh, ceo at, at cricket australia was asked about this in his press the other day where he gave very little on any subject you know it, it was he was asked about about moving the World Cups around and, and India's T Twenty World Cup coming first, and basically just said, "Oh well, they've they've the ICC have thought about that a lot, and they've made a very informed decision, and that's what they think the best decision is." <laughs> um, and, and and his his response to what contingencies do you have in place, um, and like what are the thresholds? What at what point would you consider moving it? And he's saying, "Well, well, if if we can get crowds in at the MCG, we'll have it at the MCG," and they're like, "Yes, but." If you can, like when do you decide that you can't do that? What are the what are the alternatives? And he was just sort of brushing it like dis- deflecting it is, is the word I'm looking for with by saying, Well that's a long way away. Like yes, we know it's a long way away. What are your plans, you know, in that in that event? So we, we can't get any clarity there from CA, which means, I guess, that the um, the kind of speculation stories that it'll be held at, at, you know, Tony Island Stadium in
0: Townsville will continue in, until it either happens or it doesn't. A bit of player movement as well. We're talking about game movement, but just uh, a couple to note. Sophie Devine, who's been the superstar alongside um, Susie Bates of the Adelaide, Strikers is on the move to the Perth Scorchers where she will play um, in the WBBL this season alongside Beth Mooney. Uh, Suddenly they look like the team to beat straight away.
1: Well we've we've seen the Perth Scorchers have a very good list on paper that hasn't done so well on grass before Um, but apparently all of the movement is that players are, are very keen to play under the Dock. Uh, Shelley Nitschke is coaching at the Scorchers and, ah. and that's been the draw for a couple of those players now that Lisa Kightley has gone on to coach the England women. So that's yeah, that, that's been luring a couple of them over because they, they want to uh, get the the benefit of, of the Dock's coaching experience and Shelley Nitschke would have been playing at the Strikers a couple, few years ago when Sophie Devine was there in, yep. in earlier seasons of the WBBL so
0: so that's part of it And we see that Peter Hanscom may be moving from the Melbourne Stars to the Sydney Thunder in the men's competition I interviewed Pete a few weeks ago uh, about, uh, well it was about a lot of things really but partly it was uh, him not coming over here this year to play for Middlesex, he's going to come in 2021 and 2022 but he's in this interesting sort of mid-career i wouldn't call it mid-career crisis that'd be overstating it but um the fact that he's obviously not in the test side not been in the one day side um not in the t20 side although he hasn't played much uh, australian cricket as a t20 international but a couple of years ago we go back three or four years he was sort of the next big thing potential future captain and so on uh, but uh yeah he, he sort of Had that period out of the test team after the 2017 18 Ashes. Got back in uh, for that Johannesburg test match, that crazy Joe Berg test match. Was back out. Uh, uh, during the UAE test matches, back in when Australia hosted India um, after the sandpaper bans. And I mean, he's still kind of trying to find his way, but um, it's still obviously a very valuable commodity as far as the Big Bash is concerned. One of the real genuine stars of that in the early years. And yes, it looks like he's he's leaving the stars and and moving up to the Sydney Thunder.
1: Yeah, that one's interesting because it it was his Big Bash work with the stars that that, that got him to the level required to be so good in one day cricket for Australia for mm. a, a while, you know, before Steve Smith came back and, and took his spot ahead of the World Cup. Hanscom was really impressive the way he managed those middle overs. He was that, that perfect middle overs player, really good against spin, uh, could come down the wicket, could find a single off just about every ball um, but then also had the gears at, at the back end of the innings to to go up, up the gears and start hitting boundaries um, in a whole range of areas and that was, those were all skills that he developed with the Stars so um, they'll be pretty badly winded to lose a player of his quality I think.
0: And one quirky one to finish Uh, Johnny Pyrrhic had a story in The Age Today which was an exclusive saying that Mitchell Stark has been successful in winning an insurance payout which relates to the 2018 IPL. So as I understand it, slightly complicated story. He was going to be playing for KKR um, at the 2018 IPL and then he injured himself in the Test Series in South Africa. And due to the sort of boutique insurance that he had taken out around injury, um, he's been trying to prove that if it's one impact injury uh, that leads towards him missing a tournament like that, then he's insured essentially. Uh, and mm-hmm. he's been pointing towards what happened to him when he was bowling in South Africa as that impact injury, which means that he's eligible uh, to uh, receive this insurance payout. And it, it looks as though they've they've reached a settlement. But um, yes, I mean, I, I would have thought you'd be a bold insurer to um, to, to to kind of take the bet that Mitchell <laughs> Starc might break down at some point, needing you to <laughs> dig into your pockets. I mean, I mean, who's who's, he, who's taking this bet?
1: <laughs> this is yeah, like some someone after the after sixteen free rum and cokes at Crown Casino <laughs> was sent down to them at, at the two dollar fifty tables on the main floor. <laughs> they're like they've had the two dollar fish and chips, but it hasn't helped, <laughs> and they're like, "Yeah, Margaret, oh, I'm going um, it Looking at the the way they contested this, it seems like what happened was that they they insured him against a sudden. Uh, a, a single sort of impact injury Not against a gradual wear and tear onset injury And so the argument that they've been having Is is over whether whether it was one or the other um, So that the, the lawyers for the insurer I mean, and, and imagine the eco- ecosystem that you're swimming in If you're the lawyer for an insurance company Who's trying to get away <laughs> Especially, with the, not especially paying, the sort of insurance not company payouts.
0: I mean, remember there's, there are these kind of it, it, As the story goes on to say It's the sort of company that take these, you know, rarities and oddities as far as insurance is concerned. So right. they're probably the joint. I'm reading down the page here. It's a, a syndicate of Lords of London. Remember when like Merv Hughes insured his moustache? So they probably got <laughs> him on the books as well.
1: Mitchell Stuck. George speaks. Costanza <laughs> insuring his hands because for his hand modelling, uh, <laughs> insuring, insuring. Yes. Yeah, so, so. Um, in my opinion, says the lawyer, the plaintiff did not suffer an injury or accident on the 10th of March, 2018. Mr. Stark became aware of the onset of right posterior and posterior lateral calf pain during the course of the second test. <laughs> to download a PDS, go <laughs> Onset <have seen> <laughs> <laughs> On the set appears to have been gradual and symptoms continued over the course of the test. So it, it had to be an impact injury, like when he ran into the set of practice stumps and gouged oh, yeah. a massive hole in his leg and had to get 37 stitches. If he'd done that, he would have been insured. But um, anyway, he's got the payout, so that's a relief. For anyone who was worried about Starkey missing out on his money from the 2018 IPL, he got $1.53 million in, in in insurance payout. So, uh, you know, solid work. If, if you take the bet, <laughs> take the
0: winnings. Good work if you can get it. Jeff. let's take a break and when we return, uh, two segments, certainly two of my favourite Regular segments on the show. I know they're two of your favourites as well. We'll have a, just a wee bit of nerd pledge, and then we'll learn a bit more about Sachin Tendulkar's Twitter account.
1: And we're we, we're gonna we're gonna do the thing where we talk about something that's that's I'm I'm gonna level with you, listeners. It's it's a it's a paid um, position. It's it's an advertising thing. But if you if you really hate ads and you're like, I'm not gonna listen to that. Maybe I'll tell you a joke. Maybe just uh, just. Through, during the ad somewhere, maybe I'll just tell you a joke. Maybe that's maybe that's reason to listen on.
0: It's that time again, Jeff. Where our friends at Wisden Towers at the Oval in London <laughs> produce a new monthly magazine. It is Wisden Cricket
1: Monthly. Ah, oh, the full moon has is is at its uh, at its fullest. It's swollen. I, I can feel the pull, the lunar pull, in my waters. As a human who is seventy percent water, and and that tells me that it must be the one time per lunar month that. There's a new episode of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, 13 a year as is my understanding on the lunar calendar, am I wrong?
0: (laughs) No, it's actually 12 a year, 12 a year because 12 a year represents one per month and the reason I know there's a new edition of Wisdom Cricket Monthly coming out next week is that I owe them an article tomorrow morning. No, I've written it to me, i have just got to edit it, tidy it up. (laughs) I'm sorry, Joey, and I'm sorry, Phil. I have I have been doing it. It's just been hard going over the last few days. Why don't I plug my article? Why don't I say what I've written first? before Yeah, we go on. What's so your right? I, I interviewed. You I think it was pretty good. I've interviewed Brian Henderson, okay. who's the boss of Sky Cricket, to ask him uh, about oh, yeah. how that happened on the first day at Southampton, and he was fucking brilliant. And I was just so impressed by the whole yeah, thing right. that I said to the boys at Wisden, I'm, "I'm, let's let's do a proper interview thing here." So that's in there. Uh, we've got an interview with Joe Root by Lawrence Booth. This is full circle. So, edition one of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, which was before the 2017-18 Ashes, uh, Joe Root uh, was the cover story, and Lawrence wrote that. I did an interview with Stephen Smith, actually, for that edition of the mag, so they had both Ashes captains featured, but um, they've gone back to Root uh, three or so years later, and Lawrence, the editor of uh, the book... (laughs) They sound like a married couple. (laughs) He's doing that (laughs) Lawrence and. I wonder, yes. <laughs> <laughs> They've got a mediator in there. They've got, this it's like counseling. <laughs> Joe can explain his side, and Lawrence can explain his, and well. Um, we've never had Joe on the show. We've had Lawrence on a few. I'd like to have Joe Reed on the show uh, at some point. He's a really nice guy. We'll see what we can arrange later in the year.
1: I think he's one of those people who needs to retire before he gets more interesting. You know, he's he's just going to be too 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 much the party line at the moment, isn't yeah, possibly.
0: it? Possibly, although he's very good one to one. So I wonder whether if it was in the setting of a podcast, whether we might get that side of. Joey Root, we'll see. I might try it on. The second instalment of what Giuseppe they're, they're Root. doing with uh, <laughs> um, diversity. So F- Phil and Joe, who had run the magazine there, have uh, decided to not just do like one... Uh, edition devoted to Black Lives Matter. They're doing a, a number of um, a number of installments over a, a period of time through this, the rest of the year. I believe it is uh, going into um, diversity in English cricket. Uh, this time they're looking at cricketers of South Asian descent in the UK. I'm really looking forward to that. I uh, wrote a piece for the uh, for, for for another magazine, All Out Cricket, which has a lot of ties back to Wisdom Cricket Monthly some years ago. Looking at this uh, in Bedford and Bedfordshire, uh, where Alistair Cook. Uh, grew up on the right side of the tracks, if you like, and on the other side of the tracks there was some great work being done uh, in terms of the South Asian community. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing what they have found in their second instalment of that
1: series. When when you say the right side, you mean you mean the rich side,
0: right? Well, yeah, basically Bedford School has yeah. got more practice wickets than I don't know fucking the MCG, uh, and then Queens Park, which is one mile away um, is one of the poor. I think from memory it was the poorest postcode in the United Kingdom and uh, yeah. I just found this contrast too good not to go into and I visited Queen's Park and it's one of the best things I've actually had the chance to do in the, in the in the job over the years but anyway for another day we might get some of those guys on the show come to think of it the regular contributors are all there Andrew Miller who of course is from ESPN Crick Info he has a week, a monthly column uh, in C- Wisdom Cricket Monthly that's how it works if you've got a column in Wisdom Cricket Monthly you ha- Get yeah. a go, on a page once, once a month. A month, I mean, wow. beggars okay. believe.
1: Do, do you want? Um, do you want me to tell you a joke? Please do it. Okay. So a guy goes into a library, and he goes up to the librarian and he says, "Hi, can I have some fish and chips?" The librarian says, "This is a library." He says, "Oh, sorry. Can I have some fish and chips?" <laughs>
0: <laughs> where did you hear that? Can you remember where you heard I, it? I, I don't
1: know. I just thought I needed to give people a, a lure to listen to the ad and that was the first joke I could think of. I think I think my very former housemate from Davy Street, Toby, told me that it's
0: many good. years ago. It's good. Do you know what I should say it's before I go one. any it's further in talking about this yeah. magazine? I should say that um the, the, the offer code, or should I say the offer website has changed. You may have heard us talk yeah. about Wizard Cricket Monthly before and you know what, what it's all about. Six editions, ten quid. Very, very good offer. Bitly dot com. It's now bit.ly forward slash wcmtfw. So Bitly forward slash wcmtfw. You don't need an offer code. You don't need a. You don't need anything. All you do is pop that into your search bar, and you're away. You're through to the semis without dropping a set. So we'll put that in the show notes for you. Um, I neglected to mention the other monthly contributors to Wisdom Cricket Monthly. Uh, Lizzie Ammon, who writes about the county games. As for Ansari, former England international and Surrey player who got a double first from Cambridge in rocket science or something ridiculous like that. Uh, Mel Farrell's in the magazine this month. Mike Brearley is as well. So as ever, there's so much going on in the pages of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, the best cricket magazine in the world, bit.ly forward slash WCMTFW it's an offer that we have had going with them for a long time now Um, if you jump into the link now you'll get six editions of the magazine for £9.99 I'm not quite sure how that works out to in Australian dollars and all the other currencies that Jeff worked out a couple of months ago but what I do know is it's outstanding value they've been supporting the show and hopefully we can support them with their brilliant publication
1: Hi, I'm Ian Chapel. You're listening to the Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon.
0: It is the Final Word. I'm Adam Collins. It is <laughs> As very I say late. say in Spanish, <laughs> "La
1: palabra última."
0: <laughs> It is very late where I am. It's very early where Jeff is. We are both knackered, which must mean it's time for... Nerd
1: Pledge! La Palabra Ultima. El juego que partimos... Oh, sorry. um, The game that we play with people on our Patreon page... Where they, for some reason, decide to support this show uh, financially by sending us a number of dollars and cents, and that correlates to a cricket number, and we have to work out what the cricket number is. The first of our new numbers, just a a couple of new numbers on the show today, is from a longstanding supporter and online friend of the show, Sarah Berman. Now, Sarah Berman sent us in a a number a while ago, and, and we solved it, and- she said, Well, I'm going to have to do a new number, and so she changed it because you can do that and then you can come around again, as Powderfinger once sung. Slowly creeping in, a time and its command. Soon enough it comes. And and here she is again, Sarah Berman, with six dollars forty three. Now, I didn't even have to look this up because her first number was Michael Atherton related. I can't remember exactly what it maybe I it was. I think it was just I think yeah, it was
0: one hundred eighty five, and then she went from that to it was it was something else very good, Atherton-related.
1: but And it was, yeah, I'd, I'd found his number of first-class catches or, or- Something like that. It was related to that. Anyway, she said, all right, well, it's time to change it. Now, she changed it to $6.43, and I happen to know, without looking for it, that 643 is the number of minutes that Michael Atherton battered when making the 185 <laughs> at Joburg- all those years ago in 1995. Uh, That, I I did double check it, but, you know, I was... um I was, it, it's nice when you get one off the top of their head and you're like, "Sure, got this. Um, so, Sarah, it's
0: Michael Atherton again, surprisingly. <laughs> well done, Sarah. Thank you for being such a, a consistent, loyal and friendly part of the final word crew. One
1: little Easter egg about that Test match in 1995 when they bowled at Atherton for about five days and, and couldn't get him out. 52 overs were bowled in that last innings by Clive Eckstein, who, of course, is the plonker who went really? on to uh, smuggle the Sonny Bill Williams masks into the test match at Port Elizabeth. The in, same one? Yeah, in, in a very unimpressive style as far as human beings' behaviour goes. Um, Clive Eckstein was bowling to Atherton and bowled 52 overs um, fruitlessly. So, you know,
0: <laughs> serves him right. Well, all the better. I'm very glad to hear that's who was uh, at the bowling crease for hours on end Michael Atherton and Jack Russell uh, battered South Africa into oblivion in a test match. None for seen. 76
1: <laughs> of off 52 overs. So, oh, so happy hunting there. Um, the, the other thing I wanted to raise with you, Adam, is when we talk about that innings and we celebrate the draw that was batted out, realistically, shouldn't England have just won that match? I mean, they batted for so long. Like, okay, they needed 479. Mm. They got 351 for five. So they were only 130 short. Atherton faced nearly 500 balls, made 185. Jack Russell faced 235 balls for 29. If they'd just taken some singles, they would have actually won that game. Possibly, <laughs> why, although... That, why not
0: just win it? That does sort of cut across what you said before about fourth innings chases, and there's a reason why they fall <laughs> apart, because they go for the runs. But, uh, yeah. yeah, I do see your point. Uh, but I think the story's better on the basis that they, that they saved it and had to do... Uh, superhuman things To still be there After all those hours so Remember Alan Donald's Steaming in at You know yeah. 90 plus mile an hour I mean Survival so Get off strike
1: itself. Get a single Get to the other yeah,
0: end <laughs> I suppose so I suppose so <laughs> Why don't you put that to Appers next year? Next time you see, I will. Him. <laughs> I will. Yeah.
1: We'll, we'll, hope, we'll hopefully we'll interview him on the show at one point. Oh I'll yes, be like, yes.
0: Why didn't you win it?
1: Let's talk about the botch in Joburg when when you choked, <laughs> <laughs> when you couldn't get bat on ball. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, um, Jeffers. What's next? Who's next? I should say. And thank you again to Sarah Berman.
1: Ryan Smith
0: is next uh, with a pledge
1: of five dollars thirty-one. Now five thirty-one. There was a number that jumped out at me again without looking this up because I remember watching this happen live last year. Jimmy Neesham, friend of the show, took his best ODI figures at the World Cup against Afghanistan, 5 for 31. I Ball remember very nicely that. Send it.
0: I know why you were yep. watching that because I was sitting next to you. We were watching England-Bangladesh on the television at the Oval because Australia were playing India there the following day. So I was doing the OBO, the second innings of Eng- England-Bangladesh from Cardiff. You were watching Afghanistan-New Zealand on the computer next to me whilst we were alt-tabbing to Ash Barty winning the French Open. All these things were happening at the same time. Then we jumped on... No, we was that the day we... Yeah, Australia were playing the next day, weren't they? So we were staying put. Uh, That wasn't Mm. the day we had to rush from the Oval at 9 o'clock at night to Manchester. That was another day. But anyway, they all kind of roll into one. They were happy times.
1: So, so it's Jimmy Neesham's ODI best. It's also uh, another final word fave, Dan Christian's ODI best figures too. Uh, and it's also the third best figures in one day cricket for Elise Perry, who's got three fivers. That's one of them, uh, another five, and then the seven for that she mm. took at Canterbury. So, those are some 531s. Another one. Just one more, just one more before we go. In Test Cricket, we spoke a few weeks ago about Peggy Antonio, who was the leg spinner who played in Australia's first six women's Test matches from 1934. Uh, not her best because she took a six for as well, but she did take five for 31 to set up a chance at a win touring England playing in Blackpool in 1937. The Australians fell 25 short in the chase, and it still stings. It still <laughs> stings. But Peggy Antonio, that's your second message, second mention on the show in a few weeks.
0: Good job. Peggy, uh, I've got a uh, 531 as well that kind of jumped out at me straight yeah. away because it's an innings I spent way, way, way too much time uh, looking back at when I first started writing about cricket, actually, or when I first started working in it full time. In any case, 531, of course, is the uh, is the innings tally that Australia made at Sabina Park in the first dig in 1995, which well, which decided that they were going to go and win uh, the Frank Worrell Trophy for the first time in well, a very, very long time. I don't know the Previous time they won it, but it must have been back in the seventies. Uh, and anyway, uh, that was that was the uh, the war war partnership. Um, I had some notes written down. Indeed, I've got about a page and a half of notes written down about Mark Wall's innings, his one twenty six.
1: It just sounded like you were. Doing a musical interlude at that point. That was the wah, wah partnership. Wah, wah. wah, wah. I'm like, was it very (laughs) sensual? What happened in that partnership?
0: Well, what happened was that Steve Steve was dropped by Courtney Brown on not many single digits, and of course went on to make. 200, Greg Ritchie running on the ground we all know that, Mark Wall's 126 though, he described it as as his best innings I I sort of think of it as one of his two masterpieces, the other of course at Port Elizabeth uh, in 1997, but Mike Coward's on TV commentary and I took this quote down when um, going into way too much depth about this when writing a a feature for a magazine Coward said, they have always feared him, talking about David Boone after he's dismissed via a bouncer, actually Boone wasn't out, he was hit on the helmet and he was given out and he was absolutely furious when he walking off the field, he didn't get an inside edge, but anyway on walks, on walks Mark Waugh at 3 for 50 so they've always feared him more than anyone else, the man that's now going to confront them, they don't fear it's going to be a great test of Mark Waugh's character and strength to resist Curtly Ambrose it's a lovely spray mm-hmm. from from mike on the way in and of wow. course mark wall and i've got here in my notes here <laughs> boundaries to 100 um it's like a child's diary looking at my notes about mark wall sometimes two times square drive perfection three times clip-off pads two times hooks two times slide over slips and one times uh, work through slips and they were the best is that a nice
1: way of saying you got a big outside edge <laughs>
0: Yeah no oh, no 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 this was uh, this was I mean when he was on like this and he was a few times in his career there were no outside edges he knew exactly what he was doing not too dissimilar to the century he made against the West Indies at Melbourne a couple of years before that when he was stepping back to open up the offside and uppercut the Windies all day long much to their frustration but this was that was a that was genius but yes people remember the Steve War innings obviously but uh, one of the yeah Mark War masterpieces as part of Australia's five thirty one at Jamaica in 1995.
1: Very nice. Our last number for the day is a double header, Elise Gain, friend of the show online as hey, Elise. well. And Sam Ashworth. Now, Elise, if you pronounce Elise's name differently, Elise Gane, it would be past tense in Spanish for she won. Uh, and, and she will win today because whatever happens, everybody always wins on Nerd Pledge. It's the game you can't lose. Uh, two Two dollars twenty six was their number, so two 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 six. So this is a this is a big West Indies number, uh, because there were two twenty sixes made by Cigarfield Sobers, Gordon Greenwich and Brian Lara. They all made two hundred and twenty sixes. Bradman made one against South Africa in nineteen thirty one, which I know you you're, you've been interested in that series before mm. when he made eight hundred odd runs in five hits. And then the other link, the other West Indies link that I found, though, to, to the three mentioned earlier, is that this is Lance Gibbs's one-day international economy rate. Now, if you don't know who Lance Gibbs, of course is, it is. <laughs> he's 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 a finger spinner who was famous in in Test matches for he, he went past Fred Truman by taking over three hundred Test wickets. He took three hundred and nine Test wickets, so he was the second player past three hundred, wasn't he?
0: That's right. Yes, the electrified tarantula he was known as in his uh, with that. Big limbs of his Of course he Played in Australia In 1960 And uh, had a prolific career Over here as well In, in league cricket There's a brilliant essay uh, In the most recent Night Watchman About Lance Gibson His club cricket uh, Written by Jonathan Wilson uh, I, I'm up in the, the northeast corner of, of England Up in Sunderland Which I won't uh, Go into too much depth on So I encourage you To buy the night watchman But um, yes uh, One of the all time greats Of West Indies cricket Sunderland till I
1: die So Lance Gibbs, uh, prolific in test cricket. You were saying he was playing in 1960. This means by 1975, he's, he's been around for a while. Mm-hmm. He he played three one-day internationals because they were just inventing the format. So, he made his debut when he was 38 years old, I think. It was 1973. He played a couple of games, just, just the two. And then they played the World Cup in 1975 and he played once. He played the first match against Sri Lanka, who... The West Indies had bowled out for 80-odd. Um, he only bowled four overs in the match. And then they started using the, the four-pace bowler strategy, and that kept him out. He didn't get to play another game for the rest of that World Cup. So he was their, their great bowler, but the, the Clive Lloyd 4 prong pace attack strategy meant that he didn't play another one-day international, and that was his career, uh, conceding 2.26 runs and over in one
0: days. I suppose you would still call him then a World Cup winner. That's, of course, how we like, describe squad players who, who weren't on the field in the finals. Take someone like uh, Brendan Julian or Shane Lee, they come to mind. They, they're still known as World Cup winners. Even Xavier they, Doherty. Yeah, Only if they, played one game. yeah, if they played in the tournament. I mean, even Liam Dawson, bless him, I, I was was commentating yesterday when he unfortunately came a cropper and snapped his Achilles. He's going to miss the rest of the season, which is just devastating for one of the nice guys in the game. But um, he he was in the squad. All the way through the World Cup last year, but he's still considered a World Cup winner. But anyway, I digress. Yeah, I like that a lot. That uh, we've got Lance Gibbs' economy rate from one day internationals <laughs> into nerd <laughs> pledge. I, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna go with a slightly different theme uh, on my two two sixes. First of all, next week will be the 20 year anniversary of a special series, a super series at the Docklands, Jeff. I'm sure you were there for some of these. Well, I think there were three one-day internationals, weren't they? They were um, were played against South South Africa. Africa That's right. They played three in South Africa, then three in Australia. It might have been the other way around, actually. But the three in Australia were significant because they were played under a roof for the first time in winter. It was August. Uh, It was the Docklands, which was, of course, brand new. So it, it was at the time of year when the Docklands wasn't being used for football, I think I'm right in recalling because the Olympics of um, 2000 were in September, which meant the footy season finished in August, and they played a final at the Docklands the week before. In fact, of course, they did. I was there when Hawthorne beat Geelong. You were probably there as well that first final, Jeff. Were you there that night? 2005. 2000, yeah, I was there. Barry yeah, when, um, last game. It was. Yeah, it was, and it was. Who was it that threw the ball over the head of Daniel Chick to give him a 50-meter penalty at a crucial time? Who was that? Was Brenton it? Sanderson. Was it Brenton Sanderson? It was someone Maybe. who went on to... Ha- I, I do remember there was a, a, a massive turning point. Chick gets a 50-meter penalty, slots a, home, a goal home, and, and that's that. But yes, Barry Stoneham's final game for Geelong in the hoops. But um, the week after that, um, Hawthorne were playing uh, their semi semifinal um, against North Melbourne at the G on the Friday night. A couple of kilometres down the road at the Docklands, the 18th of August, it was a tie... In the dome or at the, the Colonial Stadium, I think it was called then. Actually, um, yeah. where they tied on two two six, and I just had a quick skim at the scorecard because I'd, I'd been at the first of those games on the Wednesday or Thursday night. It must have been a Wednesday night. Um, bunked off school early, <laughs> nipped down to the Docklands, and uh, as as I would do pretty routinely when I was that age, <laughs> put um, a fiver on Mitchell Stark's yeah, ankle injury. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I was there for the first one, but the second one, I was uh, yeah, I was watching Hawthorne lose to North Melbourne, uh, but um. Uh, but yeah it was a a tie where they made 226 apiece and what was most interesting looking at the scorecard this was when they started playing funny buggers with Michael Bevan where they thought well we'll hold him back and we'll use a dynamic batting order and we'll bring him in to finish the game but they left it too late they brought him in at number 8 behind Everyone else really was it? Was Shane Lee playing? No, but the freak was Ian Harvey came in at number seven ahead of Bevan, and they they didn't quite get there. Jason Gillespie was out with a couple of balls to go run out. Who
1: was it who hit the roof? Was it Simon's who hit the roof, or was it Herschel Gibbs?
0: Oh yeah, that happened in the series, didn't it? Or might have happened in two thousand and five when they played the other. I think that was two thousand and five when they played another series of games there for um, the what were they calling it the. Um, When they played the six-day test match and then they played a...
1: Oh, the ICC super super test series or whatever, the ICC
0: 11. So the ICC 11 also played one day, which included a game Mm. where um, someone hit the roof, I reckon, but anyway, the first of those games were in August of 2000. Some other bad nights for Australia and bad days for Australia on 226 as well, by the way. Not a good number for them. Uh, in 2003, that's what they made when Andy Caddick bowled them out at the SCG in the final test of that series. Uh, Seven a lovely, for bugger all. Yeah, lovely piece from Barney Renee uh, in The Guardian about um, that test match during lockdown. Uh, 226 is uh, what England made when they Pumps Australia in the World Cup semi last year at Birmingham, and two two six was what Australia made in uh, the nineteen eighty three World Cup at Nottingham when Zimbabwe beat them famously. Uh, when Zimbabwe were victorious over Australia, a one day international that was one of the very first that Jim called overseas when he was part of the the TMS team uh, over there. As a, as a youngster, so he's told me all about that before. Uh, so they're my suggestions for two two six. None of them are good for Australia though. <laughs>
1: Well, well, let's let's give I'm I'm going to say that Sam Ashworth is a super series freak. Uh, <laughs> loves loves Marvel Stadium as it's known now. It has has a picture of the stadium with each of its different names, like a different one. said this is when it was Colonial Stadium. This is when it was. Uh, I
0: the can't Telstra. What else no, it's it, was been the, it was the it uh, Tel- was the yes, it was the um, it was the Robert Walls. Oh, the Telstra Dome. The football so fast <laughs> under the Telstra Dome. I just think that when they play at the Telstra, Dome. A, a, a friend of ours, Dylan Leach, does the all-time greatest Robert Walls, and usually discussion around the Telstra Dome comes up. Uh, it, it was it was Eddie
1: Had Stadium for a while, um, which was you know always seemed apt when eddie Maguire was seemed to be you know running the afl it was eddie had stadium eddie had whatever he wanted um and, and and now it's marvel for some reason anyway it's got a portrait of each of those each of those moods moods of the docklands it's called um they're 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 not they're not very numerous the moods of the docklands
0: do you want to know something that's quite confronting in terms of how oh you finish and i'll tell you the confronting fact.
1: I was just going to say I'll, I'll give Elise the, the West Indies quadruple there of Sobers, Greenwich, Lara, Gibbs.
0: A, a few years ago I was writing a piece about the Docklands, probably five years ago actually, so this will be way out of date, but the, the Docklands as of then were just overtaking VFL Park for the amount of games played at it, which feels wrong to me. VFL Park felt like a, like a real long-term staple of the comp, but the Docklands had already mm. overtaken it. They played that much footy under the roof. There between 2000 and 2015 that they played more games there than the, the 29 years they played at VfL Park. Valet. VfL
1: Park, an outstanding heritage-listed example of early brutalism in architecture. If I, I had my way, in the whole
0: stadium, the whole ground would have been heritage-listed. Um, <laughs> anyway, for another conversation, for another you've, podcast. You've probably,
1: you've probably got like a scrapbook with like, you know, hot chips stuck in it from when you were out there that would be heritage. Listed. Oh, that was my first job.
0: Yeah. It was my first job was a pie boy. I was a pie boy for two seasons at VFL Park in 97 and 98, which I did very poorly at because they were the last couple of years of Dunstall, so I'd just go and basically sit behind the coals and watch the footy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so
1: they'd say, who ate all the pies? And you say, well, nobody, unfortunately. Yeah, regrettably, <laughs> no one did. I'm just shit at my job. <laughs> Oh, oh, so on brand for you. Yep. Um, that's Nerd Pledge. That's that's the end of the game. If you'd like to play, if you want to send us a number and challenge us, you can sign up, go to patron.com slash the final word. It's in the show notes as well, and uh, you can help support the show, and you can pose us a stumper that we will come to. We'll have more in-depth Nerd Pledge on the weekend show when we wander, even though we've, well, we've wandered pretty but I think when we're in the second half of the show we we go long when when we're in the first we're, we're allowed to try to keep it a little bit more crisp but, and of course and anyway, the, the anyway. weekend
0: show Jeff we neglected to mention off the top we've renamed it it's now called uh, Storytime Storytime So it's our Story weekend time. storytime if you've not been listening to storytime we're going to rename some of the old editions we reboot uh, our best interviews from yesteryear but also we, we give ourselves time to really get into the nitty gritty of cricket history uh, via the medium of Nerd Pledge it's been so much fun so uh, do get on board with the weekend show uh, Storytime uh, indeed please do get on board with Nerd Pledge as we mentioned on Storytime the other day we've nearly hit uh, the Brian Lara 501 and we haven't quite worked out what we will do uh, to recognise that for the person in question but we'll do something nice and we're also going to post an, an interview that Jeff did as part of Calling the Shots with Daniel Norcross and myself about his story in broadcasting, which was really interesting, uh, going all the way back to the, the glory days of Davy Street and the uh, the Valua sofa in 2013. And and that will be up in, in the next week or so when I get a chance to pull it together. But that'll be a patron-only release. So hopefully that's incentive enough to, to jump on and join patroncom forward slash the final word.
1: I think I'm going to pop up a, a, a sneak, Preview chapter as well of the book and an advanced chapter on the Patreon page, so you'll be able to read that too if you're a subscriber. Uh, it's time for something else, Adam. Satchin, it's your
0: birthday. Happy birthday,
1: Satchin. 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 it's
0: your birthday. Happy birthday, Satchin. Take it away, Jeff. Uh-huh.
1: Happy birthday, Sachin, where we keep an eye on who has been getting a happy birthday from Sachin Dendulkar on the internet this week. This is the most important journalistic work we do. Uh, Ayaz Memon got one, which is nice to see. He's an esteemed figure in the Indian literary community and uh, particularly on cricket, Uh, gives wise pronouncements, One one of the older generation who's worked out how to be very prolific and proficient at things like Twitter as well, so nice to see him get a mention also Deepa Kamaka who was the first Indian woman to qualify for Olympic gymnastics in Rio in 2016 got a happy birthday from Sachin there wasn't a lot of birthday action in the last couple of weeks those were the only two uh, birthdays of of contemporaneous people the the singer Kishore Da got a birthday gong uh, but he's passed away uh, quite some time ago, so that was more an in memoriam. (laughs) Yusvendra Chahal has been getting a lot of action from Sachin, got a birthday a couple of weeks ago, and now has got his engagement ceremony tweeted about. So double double up for the current Indian League spinner, Chahal. And Hardik Pandya has just had a baby, so that got a nod as well. So Sachin's really branching out in terms of the celebratory (laughs) messages that are going on.
0: I wonder whether Hardik Pandya will get another tweet in a year to recognise... Uh, the birthday of his child. I suspect he ah, will.
1: Yeah. Whether it's generational,
0: yeah. whether it continues on. What, what's, right. what's Sachin's kid's name again? The, 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 the son that plays club cricket in London? Arjun. Arjun Tendulkar. I wonder whether Arjun Tendulkar will start celebrating the birthdays of oh. the, the sons and daughters of those that played with Sachin. Whether yeah. we'll find a. There'll be layers to this over time.
1: Okay, but there was there was a fair bit of other um, more more diverse action. The Happy Birthday Sachin diaspora, if you will. Lata Mangeshka, who's a famous Indian singer, who's now into her nineties. Sachin was listening to her music and giving a message in, in Marathi I think which Bharat Sundaresan helpfully translated for me to say I'm listening to this song of yours and I don't have words to describe how I'm feeling, my emotions all I want to say is I hope your blessings always stay with me my heartfelt message <laughs> so Sachin's been, he's got the uh, got the old Dolby surround sound out and has been enjoying putting on some of the hits, there was a post about watering the kitchen garden and how sustainability is important and everybody can do their bit um, Good on you, Stuart Broad yeah, Stuart Broad got a gong for his five hundredth. Uh, there was also a celebration of Raksha Bandhan, which is the the sister festival in in India, where the the, the sisters tie a thread of protection around the wrists of their brothers. Uh, and and then there was this. This is a nice heartwarming quote from Sachin on the timeline, heartiest congratulations to hashtag Indian Air Force for adding the -the state-of-the-art fighter jet Rafale to our fleet. It's a massive upgrade for our defence forces who are tirelessly protecting our nation in the skies. Love to, you know, it's good to to get a bit of just... um, abject militarism in there uh, and and then finished off with this nice quote which was for Friendship Day apparently that happened as well um, the, these all must be in, in the calendar the wall calendar mm. that, that Satchin's got this is, this is from, from SRT Friendships are like floodlights on a cricket field they enjoy your success from the corner but if they realise the sun is going down on you they light themselves oh. up to provide brightness around you for me Every day is friendship day. Get, Every day is friendship day for Satchin. That, that
0: was happy birthday, Satchin. this week. <laughs> what a quote. That could be an Instagram quote.
1: Absolutely. The that sun could going be on down a, on you. An out-of-focus uh, sunset at a lake or something like that. I'll, I've never been inspired looking at the floodlights, but I will be from now on.
0: Jeff, we have one more segment to get through, uh, which... Perhaps in hindsight, we should have done earlier in the show, but hey, we've come this far. Uh, England were beaten by Ireland. Last time we talked uh, on the uh, weekly show, it was uh, after two of the one-day internationals, and we mostly talked about Curtis Kampfer, in the third of the uh, one-dayers uh, at the GS Bowl, which feels like a really long time ago now. We've had a test match in between. But Ireland beat England for the second time. The, of course, it was in Bangalore in uh, 2011 that Kevin O'Brien made the quickest one-day 100 uh, in a World Cup of all time uh, in 50 balls and was the hero there. Well, it was a different kind of heroism uh, at, at Southampton. I described him as, yeah, the hero of Bangalore and the saviour of Sa- Southampton in my piece for the Irish Times, which I had to file about seven minutes after the final ball, given it was about quarter past ten when it was all over. But um, the uh, it was... On the back of two wonderful hundreds from Paul Sterling and Andy Belburnie, a lot of pressure on both of their shoulders coming into the third game, having not really contributed in the first two. They're the leadership duo of Irish cricket, having kind of taken over the side in in the last 12 months or so. It was fitting that they ended up on uh, 329, which was the same score that they made in Bangalore in 2011. The target that night was um, 328, but they got to 329, I think, from memory. Or maybe it was 327 and they got to... 329. In any case, that was where they finished up on. Uh, Kevin O'Brien hit the winning runs. It was, yeah, I think they had eight runs to get uh, in the final over of of uh, Saqib Mahmood, and, and there was a waist-high full toss, which meant it was a free hit, and uh, O'Brien uh, didn't uh, make uh, any mistakes at the pointy end of the innings. He sort of steered young Harry Tector, who we talked about last week, to the finish line with him who was struggling, uh, and you could see the occasion was perhaps getting to him, the 20 year old, but O'Brien uh, knew exactly what to do. I interviewed him the day before, the third one day at Jeff, and he was quite bullish about uh, you know, one more performance against as he describes it over and over again, the, our biggest enemy. <laughs> he really is. The, uh, <laughs> as I said, I think it's, it's said with love from Kev though, whenever he talks about England, I, I think he knows. I mean, he played county cricket for five teams and he was on the ground staff at lords and, and and so on but i don't think it's a, right a true He's absolute
1: bastard. yes we, we've got to beat these absolute <laughs> rag pricks from that terrible place across the irish Sea.
0: yeah yeah that's right but still it was so good that it was him at the end uh so now uh, as tim wigmore uh mentioned on social media ireland Holland and Scotland have all been successful against England in the most recent time they've played them in an international which I think is quite significant
1: probably means they'll never get to play England again they'll be like well that's enough that's enough of that everybody's had their fun go home um, it, it was it was exhilarating like it was it was so much, I ended up staying up till you know it was some ungodly time at 5.30 in the morning or something in Australia. But I had to see the end of it. And you're like, well, you know, the Irish have never failed to chase 3.29. But, you know, the way that the way that Sterling went off at the start and just gave them that momentum, they're such a different side when they chase and, and they've acknowledged that themselves. But, you know, when they played those first couple of games, they just seemed like it, it felt like practice. They didn't really know what they were doing. They were just sort of little... Chipped catches to the infield, and they were five for nothing both times. And then you give them a run chase, and and suddenly it, it felt completely different. But yeah, there was that moment where you thought those two hundreds, as good as they were, were were going to be wasted because you know those two guys mm. got out, and then and then it just wasn't quite clicking. But I I thought Harry Tector didn't. He was nervous at first, and and, and was struggling to hit him at first, and then then. F- found his groove a little bit. He had that one key boundary through the covers that mm, sort of mm. got him to about a runner ball. And then and then they were, they were almost there and, and he managed to do his bit with Kevin O'Brien um, right at the end.
0: Yeah, and I, and I think that the positive part of all this is that you're right, they were overwhelmed in the first couple of games and that didn't really tally. But looking back at it now, it, it sort of does. A, a squad in transition. I mean, William Porterfield being told by Andy Belburnie, sorry, mate, you're not going to play um, Porterfield was captain for 11 years. Um, it's not as though he's been dropped or retired. He's in the squad. He's in the squad of 14, just they didn't pick him for the 11. Then there's, you know, Boyd Rankin in a similar situation with these younger bowlers being picked ahead of him. Um, you know, uh, Gary Wilson being overlooked in favor of Lorcan Tucker. So it, this is this kind of generation change, but happening almost inside the tour, inside the bio bubble. So, uh, yeah, it was kind of uh, a kind of a, you know, it took them a while, I think, to adjust to what they were actually doing. And when they clicked, I spoke to Paul Sterling the day after the win, and he basically said that, look, we just needed a big target. It freed us up to bat the way we needed to bat. I spoke to Andy Bellburne the day after that, and. Um, he sort of went into a bit more depth about how it's his team now and like how important this was in sort of stamping his authority. Not that he hadn't already, but as far as, you know, they'll play a number of high-profile series in this one-day Super League over the next couple of years. And now they've, they've got this platform to, to leap off, really. And if they had have gone down 3-0 and been thrashed again, it could have been fairly rough terrain. But now they've got points on the board. Uh, and confidence and belief that they can beat the world champion. So, look, who knows? There are seven spots available for automatic qualification and they're in there fighting. They're on the scoreboard. And the, the uh,
1: amazing moment, particularly, of, of David Willey also bowling a head-high full toss that Kevin O'Brien hit for six. Mm. Uh, this was in the second last over, I think, and then following up with a wide and then... The free hit again, which went for a couple, so it ended up being you know a ten-run delivery or mm, whatever it was, and it must have been a bit slippery out there. But yeah, when when you had uh, Shakib Mahmood and and David Willey both bowling beamers that that were no-balled in in the the dying overs, it it uh, definitely made them want someone like Jofra Archer to come back. You know, it, it doesn't do you any favours fighting for that spot.
0: Yeah, it was very really dewy. I mean, uh, Sakeem Mahmud's been an outstanding death bowler uh, for for uh, for Lancashire and. When he's had these opportunities with England, so no no concerns about his long term trajectory. And, and Willie, I think was player of the series. He should have been given all the wickets he took and the runs yeah. he made. Um, he made a well a half century before England lost earlier in the day, and uh, we've almost overlooked the fact that Owen Morgan smashed a century in about. 70 balls or something after England lost early wickets so um, he, yeah. you know, he was one of three, three Irishmen I was going say one of on three Irishmen to make tons on the day all Middlesex players as well I, I should note well, all have been Middlesex players at different points along the way so that strong connection between the club and, and Irish cricket so yeah it was, it was a really wonderful experience really all told uh, across the week it was just a nice little Uh, break in play between the two test series I'm really glad I had the chance to be there as part of it the ECB did a great job uh, and yeah it was a lovely series to kind of follow up as well after they completed that victory against England they uh, they told me all about the night on the piss at the hotel uh, where they were singing songs all night and drinking beers in this hotel where they'd been for three and a half weeks sitting on the balcony and giving it their best uh, despite the fact that they couldn't exactly go out and celebrate but they did, they did the best they could uh, and I think it was only right after another uh, momentous night in Irish cricket history Time for a lock-in,
1: uh, time, time for us to go to bed, both of us I think <laughs> Yep. For certain ends of the day, but the same yep. end of our tether.
0: No, no, it is. Thanks for sticking with us. It's been a fun show, I think, even though we've been a bit uh, ragged. We'll be back, of course, uh, for story time on the weekend. Thanks to everyone who's uh, been so enthusiastic about uh, the weekend stuff as well. Like, our patron DMs have been chockers the last few weeks, and that's just great we love going through them, we love talking to everyone who enjoys the show, there'll be more on Patreon this week as we uh, discussed earlier so uh, jump on patreon.com forward slash the final word, thanks for everyone who uh, drops us a rating or a review or a tweet or an email, it's all appreciated, it all makes a big difference of course, you know now we're doing this a couple of times a week and we're having a a great time in hopefully building the final word audience, thanks to Jeff for getting up after what was a couple of hours sleep more or less a nap, Um, you can go back to bed now uh, and yes. uh, and thanks to everyone for tuning in listening in and being part of the fun on the final word <laughs> that's it i've got to go now bye yep. good night yep, yep. good night <laughs>